Hey everybody, this is Carlos. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're going to be speaking with Tony Pantaleo of Florida Redtails and Sen Cal Exotics. Tony's a locality boa and python breeder who is also a fellow falconer. We're going to talk about how he got involved in the boa game and his plans for the upcoming season. Finally, he's going to give us some tips on breeding true redtails. Borac Radio is on the air now! Welcome everybody to Borac Radio. I'm your host, Carlos Rojas of Morphs Unleashed. And I'm really excited about our guest today, Tony Pantaleo of Florida Redtails and St. Cal Exotics. Based out of California, Tony is well known for his work with pythons, but he's also a locality boa aficionado. Tony is also a fellow falconer. Tony, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no sweat, dude. So, brother, for those that may be unfamiliar from the boa side of the house, talk a little bit about, you know, how you got involved in reptiles and then how eventually that kind of led you to boas. Sure, yeah. So, um, as a kid, I I didn't really have any concept of reptiles as a pet. Um, and we went into this local pet store and the guy there, it was it was a pet store, but he had a heavy emphasis on reptiles and he had like, at the time, you know, everything was wild caught. So we had this little tiny wild caught um, Suriname boa, and he put this oh, cool. flighty bitey little thing in my hands, you know, yeah, and yeah. and I just like fell in love. And and so my first my first obsession was uh, definitely red tail boas. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and so and this guy actually, so he was like, "Oh, if you like this, come back next week." You know, and I came back to the shop next week. <laughs> and this is the 90s, so he had an albino ball python, and, like, my head exploded. It was – I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Oh, yeah, dude. Uh, that, those were insane and, back in the day, man. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what yeah. were they going for at that time, like, between 5 to 10? Yeah, I think it was I think it was about 7500 bucks a piece. Oof. got it from uh, Pete Call. Okay. Uh, and then he's like, oh, well, if you like this, come back next week. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy – and so uh, I came back next week, and he had a pair of visual pods also. Holy and shit, dude. Yeah, this guy, he his business didn't last long. I think he was spending all on these cool snakes from Pete. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it got me hooked, you know. And, of course, my dad was, like, deathly afraid of reptiles. So that was um, that was a no-go. But, like, I was just obsessed after that. And so, you know, like most of us did, I started researching him to death, like going to the library, getting every book I could, watching every show I could. Uh, and then I picked up field herping because it was the only way I could like interact with reptiles and snakes. Right. Um, yeah. And so I kind of just for basically like the next decade did a ton of field herping and just research and stuff and kind of photographing animals in the field. And until I was old enough to like, I was like 17 and I I wanted a snake, and so I did what – I'm not condoning this. No one should ever do this. I got uh, a pair of ball pythons in my parents' house, and they found them, and they were like, that's a no-go. <laughs> so <laughs> as this was my priority – Where would you have them stashed? In the closet, you know, <laughs> with like a raincoat. I'm only laughing because I did the same thing, dude. <laughs> 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 yeah so they found him eventually but it was like eight months dude and uh holy shit yeah i think like, i lasted a month man <laughs> <laughs> i was very diligent on my cleaning you know and it's stuck yeah. in there i'm sure so uh and so they were like no you can't have this in the house and so i was like all right i got a few bucks and i i decided to move out i was ready to go to college anyways so i moved out so i could keep snakes that's awesome dude so, so yeah 
so you you end up moving out and then uh when did you kind of get, start getting involved a little bit heavier with snakes so you moved out did you pick up more ball pythons did you then kind of specializing anything kind of oh, how did yeah, that play I out immediately i started immediately massing my collection <laughs> so i got um i started i got because now i didn't have like the same restriction right and so i i was able to keep a larger snake so i immediately got yeah, a Suriname. Right. A male Suriname. And then I did get some more ball pythons. Uh, at that point, you know, like most people new into the hobby, I'm like a kid in a candy shop. And I just kind of amassed uh, a hodgepodge of cool stuff. Right. Uh, I did I did get a call albino um, from Pete. Oh. Like when you did, remember, yeah. remember the old, uh, like the self address mail and yeah yeah totally dude yeah 100 percent, man so yeah, we, yeah. i ordered <laughs> i ordered a, an albino from him that way oh my god dude i i dude I, I sometimes i forget about those days like how stressful it was <laughs> like i always sent in for the price lists you know what i mean whether it was to uh-huh. like Pete call or to david tracy over at vpi right and different people like yeah. that but dude i don't think i ever ordered during the priceless days like i ended up you know going to people's houses to pick stuff up, but I don't yeah. think I ever like actually had the balls to order. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, I feel like I was the world's biggest tire kicker by that point. Cause you know, for a decade I've been ordering these price lists and right. never been able to order. So now it's finally the world had opened up. Right. That's awesome, dude. <laughs> so, uh, tell me about some things you're uh, passionate about outside of, uh, boas and reptiles. Uh, so still definitely field herping. Yep. I do quite a bit of that. Um, I do, I do falconry, like you said, uh, yep. and that's like my number one passion to be, to be honest. But right. what comes with that too is I also love um, bird dogs, like running and training bird dogs. Oh, nice! Very man. amateur, but I definitely love it. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about too over here, man. You know, I got a. I- a German short hair and then I got a wire hair over here that, you know, I hunt pretty heavily and uh, my former apprentice, shout out to Nate Danford out there. He's a professional mm-hmm. dog trainer. So, you know, I kind of pick his brain and consult with him every now and then. So yeah, man, I'm, I'm with you on that. What kind of dogs are you running right now? Uh, I have a, a female Vishla. Oh, nice. That I've been running. Yeah. She's a good dog. She's primarily been a falconry bird. Uh, a falconry dog and then uh, I have I just got uh, an Irish setter okay. out of Pennsylvania and so I'm gonna hopefully kind of use him for both but my my main thing is I have him as a gun hunting dog and right see how he does for falconry yeah dude it's that's one of the things some people don't really appreciate I think they're you know dogs can be very hit or miss despite you know what titles their parents may have and you know it takes a lot of work to get them used to it especially if you want to dual purpose a dog so that it can work you know with both you know the birds and and with the guns because i mean i'm i'm having that struggle right now too man so like i have one little wired hair he is dumb as a rock man but in the field he is absolutely (laughs) money you know what i mean like he'll he'll work he'll work with a wire hair is a jet fuel yeah, dude, he's dope, man. He, uh, you know, he, he, he works really well with my goshawk, right? So I, I run a, mm-hmm. a Buteoides and, you know, he's, you know, she's, she's, a, she's like a don't take any shit type goss. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah. And uh, so her and uh, and the wire hair get along really well. And he's actually pretty solid little gun dog. But then uh, we have, uh, you know, that short hair. And that short hair is like a thousand miles an hour. And like it seems like the only time he's a really good dog as far as hunting wise is when he's dead tired. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like Does a, he overrun his nose a little bit? In the beginning? Oh, yeah, dude, all the time. And the thing is, once he settles down, he's actually pretty solid, at least for gun hunting. But I can't have him work with the birds because he is super birdie, right? And, like, there's been, like, three yeah. or four times where my goss hawk, you know, has bounded to his muzzle and just went for a ride with him. And, you know, yep. he's just more excited that he's got a bird on him than anything else, man. He doesn't. He doesn't really care about the fact that he's got a hole in his in his muzzle because of it, you know. Yeah. Those so are dogs. I, yeah, I feel man. like my Vishala is like that too, where she has a ton of energy. Not necessarily like uh, she's not as birdie towards the birds, but she has so much energy. It's like I feel like I have to run her before I run her, so that she gets some of that initial energy out. Right. Right, man. Yeah. So yeah, dude. So. um you mostly like uh, when you're training the bird dogs. Are you doing uh, just uh, upland work? Are you doing some duck work? Are you comboing? Like, kind of, how's that working for you? Yeah, to be honest, I've been I've been using primarily upland work. Yeah, just because we hunt a lot of quail and stuff. Um, right. And so ninety percent that, but I did use uh, my Vishla last season to flush ducks off of larger ponds for my nice uh, peregrine. Nice man. That's awesome, dude. So let's uh, kind of circle back over to the to the boa side of the house. So what kind of made you go from like a hobby collection into a breeding collection? Uh, I mean, I, th- I feel like most people in the hobby, we just do everything all or nothing. Right. And so it, it just kind of grew and grew. And uh, I, as I did it, I decided if I was going to keep, you know, amassing this collection, I needed to focus a little bit. Right. And I still haven't fully nailed that part but you know uh so i just decided that if i wanted to do it and i was gonna spend my hard-earned dollars i should do it in a way that uh it could at least pay for itself you know and and provide provide that for me as a as a kind of a business hobby yeah no i'm with you man um so was there any like specific moment where you're like, you know what? I think I'm ready to kind of take this into a business and do this more seriously. Or did it, did it just kind of evolve over time? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, that was kind of my mindset, but I, so I started, I had like a, I had a two, a group of basically veiled chameleons right, and a group of Panther chameleons and they, you know, they just made a ton of babies. And so I was, right. uh, selling them to pet stores and basically, like I, you know, it, it added up and I was like, well, this actually, you know, panned out really well for me. And I decided I was like, I can take this and, you know, just spend it on something dumb that a young 20 year old does, or I can take it and roll it over into better caging, investing in animals. And I kind of just did that and never stopped. I think, I think your story is kind of similar to how a lot of people do it. I think eventually people just slowly grow out their collections and they kind of get to this point of realization when they're like, you know, I'm keeping a lot of this stuff that I'm producing back or I'm wholesaling it and I should probably kind of get a little bit of a focus. So um, once you started kind of going into that breeding collection kind of thing, is that when you started to focus on uh, uh, locality boas or did that kind of come later? That, that came later. I was So at that point, I, I was still keeping maybe four or five locality boas just as pets. 
And then uh, I, when I rolled over that money, I was primarily rolling it over into ball pythons. Right. And that was, I think, 2000 and maybe eight or nine. Right. And I, I bought my powerhouse killer bee male uh, at the time. You know, that was a powerhouse. Oh, yeah, and, totally. And some het clown stuff. And I made possible het clowns. And so it was, I would say I rolled most of my investments over into just ball pythons. Right. And then that really, I, I did have some success with that where I was able to, you know, roll that over into more professional caging and, and other species that I was keeping. Awesome, man. And so I actually, yeah, so I went next from there actually to, I started keeping, I did have my boa still and some odds and ends, but I kind of focused down and focused on ball pythons and reticulated pythons. So that was the majority of my, my collection for you know the last maybe eight years yeah and i think like i originally like became aware of you actually because uh you were keeping retics so actually one of my buddies was like oh yeah dude there's this uh other falconer in central california he's like big retic guy and like they kind of referred me to you but at the time i was playing with the idea of uh getting some more retics i'm really good friends with uh jay brewer <laughs> so like you know yeah. i've always you know secretly wanted to keep some retics and i have kept like one in the past but it was like back in the days of the wild caught retic days so i think oh, that, that thing just like ruined me man because that <laughs> that little bastard and and, I, and he was definitely not little you know every time we opened up the cage he had yeah. the stereotypical retic feeding response and i basically had yeah. to chuck a rabbit at him to keep from getting nailed myself you know <laughs> and mind you like yeah. in, in those days i didn't you know i didn't scare too much because kind of like you dude i had a lot of locality boas and my locality mm -hmm. boas were all wild caught right but at yeah. least with those they were predictable you know like yeah, i was sure. understanding like if i open up the cage what you know i could read their body language a little bit better it just seems like every time i opened up the retics cage he just gave me the crazy eye and I, oh. you know basically like a, for lack of better better description it's like having you know a cribbo or like an eastern indigo that's really really hungry and they could be mm -hmm. sweet but the moment they see you coming, you know, they have that certain level of intelligence and they're like, Oh, all right. Yeah, I'm going to get you. That's you say that. That's like the exact analogy I use. I'm like, it reminds me of a huge athletic dry Marcon, you know, they're oh, yeah, totally. watching you. They're observant, you know, and they're kind of, if they're hungry, they come out of their spring loaded. Oh yeah, dude. hundred percent, hundred percent, man. So let me ask you, who were some of the people that kind of mentored you and inspired you when you were getting started kind of on the business side? Um, as far as, as far as I, I didn't think I had like a traditional single mentor, but right. I had a lot of people that I looked up to and were, who were really good about, um, answering, you know, questions here and there when I had them and people like, uh, Casey Lazic and oh, yeah. Bissett, yep. uh, Mike Eckert, Michael Beach, uh, I really looked up to Brian Abramson, the founder of Florida Red Tails. You know, I really got up to him. He was a very nice guy. Right. Uh, and then Vin's books. I read and read and read Vin's books. And that right. was like one of my, you know, biggest learning sources of learning and knowledge. And then the rest, I think, was just kind of trial and error. Yeah, no, totally, man. And one of the things, like, we've mentioned Vin's name a couple of times here on the podcast, dude. And I think 
he still does not get credit outside of the bow community really to his contributions to the overall reptile keeping game. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he really pioneered a lot of work with locality stuff, but more importantly, he through his books brought a lot of people into the hobby and made people think deeper into their interest in boas itself. You know, I think like prior to that, um, you know, I'll be real, man. Prior to that, I think a lot of people saw boas as the cool kind of novelty snake that everybody should have one of, right? But it wasn't until Vin's books came out yeah. that people really started to take a hard look at them and specialize in them and really, really focus on them. So, no, man, I give that guy tons of credit too, man. So let's talk about a, a little bit about what you're doing currently, man. Talk a little bit about some of your uh, primary project focuses. Um, let's start with boas, and then maybe we can get into pythons and other stuff. Sure. Yeah, so this, for boas, I'm doing pretty much 100% locality stuff. Yeah. The only morph that I have is uh, Parsons, okay. and which is a, you know, which is a locality morph. It's yep. a Guyana morph. Uh, so I'm, I am breeding. I have a male Parsons and two female Guyanas. And then I have a I have a pair of North Brazilians who I believe, you know, it's looking good for this season. Yeah. The male is a is a Lemke Bisset lineage. And then the female is a Dyer Lemke. Yeah. And and those lemkies, um, they're pretty buckskin if I, if if I remember correct, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, the female has that real buckskin color. Nice. And then the male has really, you know, the kind of like the North Brazilians that really dirty, speckled right. background. Dude, those are some gorgeous boas, man. They're super yeah. underrated, dude. I think as more people sure. begin begin seeing those, I think those will kind of pop up in uh, popularity, you know, because it seems right. like every time people like. Uh, you know, mess with any sort of like short tail bows. It typically ends up being kind of on the Bolivian side of the house. But those are some yeah. bad. Those North Brazilians are really, really badass, man. Yeah, they're sweet, man. They're definitely becoming one of my favorites for sure. Uh, and then I'm also I do have some Surinams. Nice. I have a a female uh, Florida red tail line and a male that are from Brian that uh, I'm pairing this year, and those are you know two of my favorite animals and then he's also being paired with a pokey ground female Oof, that's gonna be smoking dude thanks man yeah dude and then um any other locality stuff that you got you got any peruvians or any other i do stuff? have so yeah i have um so i have a male palmaville peruvian right and then i have but he's still growing up but then the next year i'll probably do a pucalpa peruvian breeding I have a female that I'm just really. She's probably my favorite animal in my collection. She's, she has like that typical golden pucalpa color, right? And then real funky aberrant saddles. Mm. And then I don't know if it's just a fluke or or what, but I'm gonna at least try to breed for. She has, real. She has an orange tail and a really black huh. underside. Really, yeah, everything besides her saddles is like black. Yeah. So her like her belly's like black speckled. Is it? Is that kind of what you're describing? So, like, this, so basically her underside and the sides of her tail are all black, and then just her saddles are orange. Whoa. Oh, man. That I'll sounds... post up some... Yeah, it's funky, man. Yeah, dude, you got to send me a pic of that because that sounds really, really badass, man. I have the soft spot for Peruvians yeah. um, because I think 
you know, besides being one of the largest of the true red tails, right? Like they mm-hmm. tend to have like a really mellow disposition if raised correctly, dude. And they like, you know, they, they I hate to like, you know, anthropomorphize, but like they, they almost like develop like a little personality to them. Like every Peruvian I've ever had or dealt with has always been, you know, definitely like a really cool, you know, gentle giant which which is awesome because as babies they just want to eat my freaking face you know <laughs> yeah it's fun to watch you're right man it's fun to watch that develop because they really come into their own and each one's a unique specimen definitely yeah any other uh, i'll post up yeah go ahead i'll post up some pictures on my media too for for everyone if they want to check it out and we'll hopefully have a litter from her next year oh that'd be great man so um, let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the Python projects that you still have going on and talk a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. I So I still have a couple retic pairings I'm doing this year. Uh, and that's, I have a, I'm doing some like marble mochino and marble purple sunfire pairings. And uh, and then next season I have a, a girl that I'm really excited about. She's a lavender jaguar motley sunfire. Oh, damn. And my goal is to get uh, is to make some mochinos or some orange glows with her, uh, and then I have a Rennick Ghost Tiger that will be ready next year too. And I, I'm really excited about that project. No, that's an awesome project, man. Any other uh, Python stuff that you the you think you're going to have going over the next uh, the next year or the next couple of years? Yeah, I still am doing some ball pythons. I am doing some clowns, some some orange dream, super orange dream clown projects. Nice. I have a few pu- a few puzzle projects that I'm working on still, um, and then other than that, I, I would like to do a couple desert ghost pairings, make some desert ghost combos. Awesome, dude. So tell me, what are some of the lessons that you've kind of brought in from field herping into the uh, keeping side of the house? And- yeah, man. So I feel like that I the biggest way that field herping is carried over to my keeping was I don't do it often but I had collected a few specimens and I was like well what's the best way to keep these and so we brought out like infrared guns and observed um, the temperatures that they were asking at um, and and, you know kind of their behaviors and their environment and their habitat and we tried to emulate that in captivity so that they would have like the best you know the, the best closest natural environment that they could and then I was like, well, that ought to be the mindset that I carry over into keeping other stuff. And so I kind of, you know, certain species, I looked up really what is their natural environment? Right. How are they living? Where are they living? What are they eating? What's their, you know, what's the terrain? And so I did, I did my best to try to emulate that for some of the other species I was keeping that maybe there isn't as much husbandry information on. Yeah. And do you think that's what's kind of helped you become successful with uh, the true red tails? Because like for a lot of people, they become really intimidated when thinking about picking up true red tails simply because they are perceived as being very difficult to breed. Right. And very difficult to really keep thriving. But the reality is, like you're saying, you know, I think a lot of that simply comes down to lack of information about keeping them. So do you think that's played a factor in into the way that you end up uh, keeping your red tails and your success with true red tails? Definitely. I think that it's a kind of a combination of, of, you know, emulating their natural environment, whether that's, you know, nighttime drops, uh, low pressure system, breeding around low pressure systems, uh, stuff like that. And then also I feel like it's keeping, it's being fairly diligent about keeping like tight parameters mm. on your husbandry. You know, right. it's, it's a little more particular than a lot of the other species I've kept. 
where they'll thrive, but they may not necessarily uh, breed or reproduce. Right, right. No, totally, man. So one of the things that I think we wanted to cover real quick is obviously a lot of people know you for your work with pythons uh, and with SendCal Exotics, but you recently acquired Florida Red Tails from uh, Kevin South. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, man. So I, I know that, you know, there's kind of a storied history with Florida Red Tails, but it's it's always been, you know, my favorite line of my favorite animals. And I was working with Kevin, who's not too far from me, so I was able to pick up quite a few animals from him locally and I I picked up more and more locality stuff and it kind of got to the point where uh, I think that maybe he was looking to go a different direction and I had picked up most of his stuff anyway so it made sense where we were able to work out a deal and I acquired Florida Red Tails from him. Okay. And And so I got... Is is he involved in the business anymore or is it just uh, you now? Are you the sole sole proprietor of Florida Red Tails now? Yeah, yeah. So Kevin, Kevin's no longer uh, involved in the business, and got it. Uh, now, so all the social media, all the ordering, and everything uh, was going to go directly through me. Awesome, awesome, man. And then, um, uh, how is this going to interact with Sencal Exotics? Are you are you thinking of merging them, or are you going to keep them kind of like two independent companies? You know, I think I think at this point, just because Florida Red Tails has such an established name in boas right um i think that i i would maintain that and sun cal exotics you know main it's it's primarily how i've established my boas i mean my pythons and some of my other stuff right so i think i may try to run them simultaneously especially because if if i'm producing a lot of pythons it's kind of doesn't make sense for me to release them under you know this boa oh totally totally yeah so i it was kind of a tough call, and that was definitely one of the key things I had to think about when I was like, well, do I acquire this? How am I going to structure uh, sales? Uh, and I think that, you know, for now, it's best that I keep them separate, and I I want to make sure Florida Red Tails lives on and produces some cool locality boas. Awesome, man. Yeah, and I think kind of what you're describing is something that does happen a lot of times, right? Like I myself have picked up other people's collections in the past, right? That especially people that are getting out of the hobby. And, um, you know, that's always been a tough decision, whether or not you want to continue under their existing name or you want to establish a new name or you want to place it under your existing name, right? So, no, it's definitely interesting to kind of hear your thoughts on that. So along that line, kind of give us some important lessons that you've learned uh, setting up your reptile business. I would say... Focus. I mean, I, I know I'm sure everyone's probably driven this home, and I'm a bit of a hypocrite for saying it, but just <laughs> you know, <laughs> find what you love is the key thing, uh, and and not what's hot. You know, don't chase the chase the dragon. Find what's hot and, right. and invest in that, and make you know smart fiscal decisions would be my my biggest ones. Because at the end of the day, even if you get these, you know top dollar animals and, and you're producing babies, you still have to invest a ton of your time and energy into cleaning cages. And you want to love doing that. You want to love opening up those cages and checking on them. And if Definitely. you don't love what you're doing, it quickly comes to work. Yeah, no, absolutely, dude. I think that's, that's a really good set of advice, man. Now, obviously one of the things that I firmly believe is that as more people get more experience working with locality boas, especially true red tails, they're going to end up, you know, increasing their popularity even further in the hobby, right? Because it seems right now, 
true red tails and locality boas in general are kind of like a boa nerd thing, right? We we have like our own little sub community within the world of boas, and we end up, you know, a lot of times diving full in into our little kind of specialty, right? And yeah. I think as people get more comfortable with working with true red tails, because admit it, everybody loves boas because of their bright red tail, right? And the main reason people oh, yeah. love love boas, okay, is because they've usually seen a picture of a of a true red tail versus you know the common boa that most of us keep, right? So, what do you see is part of the future of the hobby, especially associated with localities locality boas? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you there as far as. I think that locality boas for a long time were kind of a niche boa, you know, boa nerd, uh, like hobby and or, or business. And right. I've noticed more and more in the last season or two that I'm getting a lot more inquiries from people who are just reptile keepers, um, right. you know, hobbyists. They have a few snakes and they just want true red tail boas. Whereas before that, a lot of the inquiries are getting, you know, we're from my friends or other breeders and yeah, people who just were exclusively locality keepers. Uh, and I think like a lot of that is, I, you know, I'm not going to bash ball pythons. I think a lot of that came from people see these crazy ball Python combos and it brings them into the hobby and that's where they start, but it really piques their interest. And as they do research, they find all these other animals. And I think that ball pythons and, and the different, you know, morphs and stuff have brought in a lot of people to the hobby. And I think they're just coming in now. And I think that's the future. I think that those people who are new keepers are going to start expanding to other species. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, there, there's always going to be a significant population that's going to fall into that niche category still, you know, I yeah. mean, people want to see the best example of something that they could potentially see out in the wild. Right. And I think there's nothing wrong with uh, mixing, you know, localities with morphs to make colors, whatever, you know, makes you happy, let, let it make you happy. But that being said, man, there's something that's just beautiful about a pure locality true red tail, right? When you're just seeing something that is a ideal example of a wild animal, okay? There's like a sense of cleanliness associated with it. I don't know, man. It's, it's hard to describe, but... You know, you see something, you're like, yeah, you know, this is something that I could potentially go out and see in the wild and appreciate, you know? Totally. Yeah, I think that's like a, not a misconception, but a lot of new newer people into like locality boas, they are kind of confused, coming from like the morph world, they're confused as to like why there's such a price, like there's so much variability in price for locality boas. And it's just because like behind the scenes, what went into that was decades of like dedicated people absolutely dude. to make the best example of Damn right. you know a mm. natural looking boa yeah dude and, and and i think you hit it right on the head man because especially when we have people coming over that are brand new to the hobby or people that are coming over from other parts of the hobby right i think the hardest pill for them to swallow is one why would we pay X amount of dollars more for a quote unquote normal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they're like, because you know, I've, I've got cheaper over here. And I'm like, that's, you know, like, that's fine. Like, if you're looking for a pet, you know, more power to you. Yeah. But like, a lot of people put in a lot of effort. And then on the flip side, you get people who are like, happy to pay what you ask because 
they know what went into that animal. Absolutely. And they understand the value of lines and line breedings. I think mm-hmm. one thing that is shared by most advanced boa keepers in general, whether they're locality guys or not, is the fact that we appreciate lines, right? Yeah. We appreciate, for lack of a better word, for those people who aren't uh, familiar with the term lines, we appreciate pedigrees, right? Uh, so, for example, whether you're looking at a morph, right, you want a specific line of pastel, let's say. Let's say you, you really want a, a pastel that maintains its coloration throughout its line, that you're like, oh, man, I really want an RC pastel, for example, right? And you're willing to pay more for that RC pastel than you would for a generic, you know, pastel boa, right? And it's the same thing when you are looking, you know, at locality boas. You're willing to pay more, for example, for like a real Bravo boa than you would be for, you know, your random wild cots. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's uh, I think that's really good point that you brought up, man. So we're going to take a quick break right now, and then when we come back, we're going to kind of talk about our, our uh, passion for falconry, brother. All right? Sounds great. All right, guys, we're back. So for those of uh, you that know me or know about me, one of the things that you'll know is the fact that uh, I'm really passionate about falconry. Now, much like the boa hobby, falconry tends to attract individuals from all walks of life. And this pursuit is, you know, at times all-consuming and it quickly becomes more than a lifestyle than just a hobby. So as a falconer, I spent the last decade, you know, becoming a hunting partner with my bird of prey. Uh, There's a lot of misconception that we own birds of prey and that couldn't be further from the truth hell if anything the birds of prey own us you know so one thing to keep in mind is that that partnership is developed through a lot of hard work okay through a lot of socialization and a lot of creation of mutual trust and uh tony on the other hand has taken this even further he's actually made a business out of falconry uh so Tony, let's kind of start off at the beginning. What are you flying right now, bro? Yeah, so I have a couple birds. I'm flying, I have a male hare's hawk that I am flying from the Coolsons, who are breeders, you know, out yep, of Louisiana. Yep. And they, they've done a good job selectively breeding these hare's hawks. So he's he's kind of my workhorse that I use uh, for work. Right. And then la- last season I flew a female, uh, an autumn peregrine falcon. And I primarily hunted ducks and crows with her. Nice man, nice dude. So, one of the things that you that you kind of just mentioned is the fact that you said that you flew it for work. So, talk a little bit about how you've been able to transition your love of falconry into a career. Sure, man. Yeah. So I do I do traditional falconry, which you know, as you know, but for everyone listening, is hunting with a trained bird of prey. But I also do something called abatement uh, abatement falconry or abatement, which is kind of glorified pest control and so what what we do is we use birds of prey to to haze pest species uh, so it, it takes a lot of different forms so that could be falconers using falcons to scare pest birds away from crops it could be used for pigeon control in urban areas and and crow control and seagulls in landfills but the bulk of, of what I'm doing is I'm using a male hair sock to basically scare off we have crows that we live in like an 
agricultural area. And so right. they'll go out during the day and they'll go into, they'll eat in the crops. And then at night they'll flood into like the urban areas cause it's quiet and warm and safe for them. And we're using birds of prey to kind of move them and haze them. So they, we basically just persistently teach them, Hey, a predator lives in this area. It's not a safe area for you to roost. And so they, they're, you know, they're roosting on top of businesses over cars and, and there's just, a huge mess with the extra. Yeah, they're just area. crapping everywhere. Yeah, yep. yeah, exactly. So we're using we're using these birds to try to try to push them out of the area uh, for the cities, and, and get you know an amicable solution where the crows can coexist, but they're not causing such havoc on the towns. Yeah, man, that's awesome. And um, let me ask you: when you started shifting over there from you know, the traditional falconry like I practice into the abatement falconry. Did that change your lifestyle? Was it pretty much in line with what you were doing previously, except now you're getting paid for it and doing maybe more of it? Like, for the on the real, like, what was that like? So, yeah, I mean, this actually, I never had any sort of aspiration to do abatement falconry because I was like, oh, I have a day job and I have a collection of snakes. And, you know, that, and, and I hunt my birds. And so my schedule looked pretty full, but I, as someone approached me about doing it in the, in the central Valley of California, where we're at, he's like, Hey, we have this problem. I have, you know, this is the job. This is the opportunity. Uh, and kind of laid out like, you know, the salary and, and the hours. And I was like, well, you know what, that fits perfectly with my day job and everything else. Right. And so it kind of aligned. Wow. And so I I had zero aspirations, but it just kind of came through organically. Nice, man. And are you currently working under somebody else's contract under your own like Yeah, so I'm I'm basically a subcontractor. Got it. And so I I you as you have to have a special federal permit to do all the abatement stuff, uh to have your own abatement license and you have to be falconer for, you know, you have to be master falconer and there's a lot of rigors that go around it that I'm not necessarily interested in at the moment. Right. But I still want to continue, you know, to, to work and get the experience in the field. So I'm just working as a subcontractor for a couple different uh, abatement license under a couple different licenses. Nice, man. So talk a little bit about what your journey into falconry was like, because obviously um, it's a little different for everybody who's involved in the sport, right? Um but uh, kind of give us a rundown of wh- how you got interested in it and then what eventually uh, led you down the path and maybe what that path looked like. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think there's two pretty common ways that people come into falconry and, and that's A, they're interested in the birds and and they learn about the sport through that and then they take up hunting. Yep. Or I think the other way is that you're already a hunter previously and, you know, you learn that this is a viable option. Right. And then the latter is kind of how I came to it. I grew up. Yeah, uh, same. Upland hunting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're. Yeah, so we, like, I, I was an upland hunter and I learned, like, and I already loved exotic animals. And so right. when I learned about falconry, I was like, well, you're telling me I can hunt upland birds or with a bird, a prey, yep. over bird dogs. And, like, it, it was just. It, it, as second I found out about it, you know, again, like the snakes, I was super into it, but my parents, you know, they were supportive, but it never really panned out. And we went, I think when I was like 16 or 17, we went 
to Ireland and we did this like hawk walk thing where oh yeah it, it yeah, wasn't yeah. yeah it wasn't hunting you know it was like but it was a cool experience to have that bird land on your glove um, and then after that like I kind of was going off to college and so I kept researching it I went to meets and I met people I'm like it was an it was an end game goal for me and so eventually once I graduated college and I bought a house I you know I just I had researched to death and I just jumped in right right man that's awesome and um let me ask you dude for um those who are interested in becoming falconers uh kind of uh lay out what the process is sure yeah i mean i would start by just kind of doing some research and and realizing it is a hunting sport and yeah. you know and, thank and, you for saying that something... dude because one of the things that i think we constantly joke about is the people that come into falconry thinking it's going to be pet keeping because they <laughs> yeah. want to walk around looking cool with a freaking hawk on your fist or a falcon yeah. on your fist right and these are the same like you know morons for lack of better terms <laughs> that will walk around with you know a seven foot boa in the middle of a mall scaring the shit out of people you know causing a yeah. negative impact right Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, if you guys want to want to be falconers like Tony and I, you gotta hunt. Sorry, there is no yeah. other way. The birds need to hunt for their mental well being. It's just that simple. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think that that's yeah. I'm glad you said that too. I think it's an important distinction that people. A lot of people we get a ton of inquiries of people who are interested, and, and when they realize it's not just having a cool pet, you know, it, it, a lot of that diminishes and. I start out right up front like, hey, it's a hunting sport. Are you still interested? It's not just a pet. And, and I think that's important because it's not fair in, in my eyes to have this bird and, and not give it that, I guess, you know, enrichment or interaction or, or that innate drive to, to get out and fly and hunt at least, you know, regularly, whatever that is for you. I try to right. do it at least every day, you know. Yeah, no, same here. We, you know, during the season, I'm out every day. And, yeah. you know, even in the off season, I think we're – you know, goofing with my birds a little bit, giving them some sort of enri enrichment activity at least, sure. you know, every three days just to keep them yeah. sane during the molt. Yeah, so I think that that's the main thing. And once you kind of realize, you know, that that's, that's what the sport is, I think the best thing you could do if you're interested in getting into it is reaching out to like your local clubs, wherever that is, um, and, and seeing when a, when a meet is. And, and going to those meet and networking and meeting other falconers there, with you telling you're new and you're interested in the sport, uh, a lot of times you're going to meet people who are willing to take you out and let you see what it is firsthand and ask questions and learn from. And, and that's what I did. And, and those networks are important because once you've done that and you've decided this is something you're interested in pursuing full force because it is such an all-encompassing lifestyle, uh, I think that you know then, then you're going to go and you're going to take an exam from – the Department of Fish and Wildlife or Fish and Game, uh, and then you're going to build. You're going to have to acquire a sponsor, and so that sponsor is going to help you build your facilities. Uh, we call them Muse. It's like a, it's basically the house yep. for your bird where you house them, and then once you build your Muse, a, a game warden is going to come out and inspect that. So, you know, this process isn't something you can decide on a whim to do. I think for me in California, it took me like four or five months before right. I was. Yeah, even like approved as a falconer. And then you're an apprentice for two years. 
Uh, and then during we should say time, a minimum can, of two years because there is yeah no, minimum of two years. That's yeah. There is no guarantee that you're gonna leave apprenticeship unless you're recommended to be promoted. Yep. yep. Yeah, that's a good distinction. Thank you. Yeah, and then so you do that for two years, and generally depends where you're at, but most places you're flying uh, a red tail or a kestrel falcon. Some other areas allow other birds, but you're 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 doing all this under the tutelage of a sponsor. And so it's something that you've got to be serious about. And, and I think, like you said, it's, it's kind of a lifestyle. Yeah, no, it totally is, man. And then um, one of the things that we do notice is a lot of people within the falconry community are also uh, reptile keepers, you know? I mean, there's, yeah. uh, you know, guys like my uh, former apprentice who is now a general, uh, Nate Danford. He was a uh, blackhead uh, python keeper and then also kept some sharp boa stuff. Uh, and then I think he also uh, keeps some uh, other Australian uh, species. And then obviously we got uh, other guys like uh, Tyler Sladen, who's uh, a big uh, retic guy, you know. And, you know, it seems mm -hmm. that there's kind of a shared passion Chase, Chase there. Chase Dellis, too. Oh, yeah, Chase, of course, man. His parents are some <laughs> of the most famous, you know, reptile people in the entire industry. And then Chase is one of the yeah. best eagle falconers in the nation, you know? Yeah. So, totally, man. So, one of the things that, uh, you know, is similar between these two uh, pursuits is that it requires, as you were saying, kind of that mentality of learning everything possible about a subject and really diving deep, deep into it, right? Uh, the other thing yeah. that it requires is a understanding that at the end of the day, the welfare of your animals is above your welfare a lot of times, right? Which means like the days that you don't feel like going out and hunting, too damn bad. The bird's got to hunt. The bird's got to eat. You know what I mean? The bird needs to fly around. The bird needs to stay healthy in that manner. So basically, what are some parallels between, you know, falconry and kind of the bow industry that you've learned now that you've been involved in both of them for a while? Uh, I think parallels is, I mean, obviously is like the attention to detail as far as husbandry goes. Uh, I learned, I feel like I t learned a ton from falconry and carried that over to my keeping to a degree in the sense that like not only husbandry but attention to detail and like the meticulousness it requires right. um to do falconry it, it taught me a, a different caliber of care and that carried over to my snake keeping as far as you know and, and i think that is one of the things that helped me with locality boas is like, oh totally dude you have to be so much more particular about you know about your husbandry and you have to be fastidious and like the weight management of a of a like a micro falcon, Oof, you know, making sure yeah. their weight is always right, is something that taught me a caliber of meticulousness that I didn't even couldn't even fathom, you know, and and that helped me in all facets of life, I guess. Yeah, no, man, I'm I'm with you on that, dude. Because honestly, for those that uh, don't know what we're talking about, basically. In order for a bird to, of prey to successfully fly against game in an aggressive manner and have a really good shot at catching them, it has to be at a certain weight. If it's too light, then it's not going to have the strength to be able to effectively pursue and catch that game. If it's too heavy, it's going to be too fat to want to hunt. You know what I mean? So you have to find this like happy median where uh, the animals really you know, at its peak condition. 
the way that I liken it, so I spent a lot of time in the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, and MMA community. It's like getting a fighter ready for a fight. You know, they have to be at the right weight where they're going to be strong enough to be able to fight to the best of their abilities. Okay, but light enough that they're not going to miss weight. You know, absolutely. Yeah, you're keeping them at you know that peak performance condition. Yeah, no man. Like a well, you know, like an athlete. Absolutely, I like that analogy. Yeah, dude. So I, I think obviously those are some great parallels that you kind of brought up, man. So let's kind of uh, now shift into talking about, you know, true red tails. Now, obviously, there's this this misconception. Well, I, I wouldn't even say it's a misconception. Um, there's this perception, right, that uh, locality boas are significantly more difficult to keep than other boas, right? And I don't think it's necessarily that they're more difficult to keep, but they're more difficult to get them to thrive, I think is a, be, a, a fair, a more fair way of putting it, right? And what I mean by thrive is being able to get them uh, in a position where they're going to be not only healthy, okay, but healthy enough to want to breed and produce uh, offspring. Now, you touched on this a little bit earlier and the fact that, you know, you really need to be super on top of your husbandry to really be successful within the locality boa stuff. So let's kind of start at the beginning. Um, what are some of the locality boas that you're working with? Kind of give us a quick description of the ones that you're working with and even particular lines and the reason that you enjoy those lines. Sure. Yeah. So I'll start with um, the Peruvians. I have Pucalpa Peruvians. And they are, they're kind of known for having a golden coloration right? and more of like a black aberrant saddles and, and, and kind of longer tails. And like you said, they tend to be some of the biggest true red tails. So they, I, the female I have is like, I think she's nine feet maybe. So that's definitely the biggest girl I have as yeah, far that's, as. That's a large girl. Yeah. And so she, yeah, they get a little bigger. Uh, and I do have the other line of Peruvians I have. So this is Pucalpa is a locality or point of export. The other male I have is, uh, I, call, I say it's a Palmaville. And that is a line bred by Jim Palmaville. And he makes these fantastic Peruvian boas that are very clean and gold. But they have like tiny little bow tie saddles. Huh. And, and they're just spectacular, man. They're just very clean. To me, it's like the pinnacle of of Peruvian boas. Right. Uh, and then I have the North Brazilians I was talking about previously. They're kind of that buckskin color and they have a really dirty, um, speckled background. Uh, and they have kind of thinner saddles, right. kind of like almost like a bat symbol. I kind of liken it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it totally <laughs> does look like that. Too. That's good. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. And then I have, like I said, I have my trio of Guyanas. And those, those are pretty similar to Surinams uh, with some variability within them. But they are uh, kind of line bred for more like a maroonish or purple color. Right, yeah. And then I have the the, the male I have is, is a Parsons I was talking about. And that's – it's still Guyana, but it's a it's a true red tail morph. And it's kind of like uh, – I call it like a, a genetic ladder tail. It's right. got like blocky saddles. They're all connected. And then it's got square, like a square blocky tail. Right. Uh, and that's a that's an incomplete dominant. So it's got a super form, but we're working on those. We're still a ways out. And then we've got the, the Surinoms, which are 
still my favorite to this day. I have quite a few different lines, but uh, those guys tend to have kind of more like a tan or gray background. Right. With, um, and, and I've seen a ton of variability with them, but at least the line bred animals have tend to have more of what are called like peaked saddles and people mm-hmm. selectively breed them so that the saddle along their back, they come up and they form like points on the top and bottom of each saddle. Right. Uh, yeah, and and that, and that and that's pretty similar to like the Windows Peak line of VPI boas. Yeah, for exactly, those for yeah. those that maybe have seen those. Yep. Yeah, and then um, and then obviously people breed them to try to make you know the longest, prettiest red tail. Yep. And so I have a couple different localities of. I mean, excuse me, I have a couple different uh, lines of those. Uh, but and it's pretty stark, like the difference in appearance. So I have. My two floor, like the two main Florida red tail breeders I have, are really like kind of like this golden color with like caramel colored saddles, and they're very aberrant, but they have like this long, beautiful red tail. Mm. Whereas um, my, my Pokey Grand female, she's got um, she's got a little bit less clean background, and it's but it's like a gray, like a true gray, and she's got like um, like very dark black high contrast saddles um and she's got a, a very red tail but it's a little bit shorter than the florida red tail so that kind of gives you an idea of like the very variability between lineage and how people have selectively bred for whatever trait that you know is desirable to them so right so brian abramson bred these caramel colored surinoms but you know a lot of the other guys are breeding for like the really high contrast gray black gray background color got it so let's go through a couple of those and maybe talk a little bit about what the temperament is like and maybe uh um, even talk about once we've kind of covered them maybe which one you would recommend to somebody that's interested in getting into true red tails and you feel like is which you know particular uh, uh group is going to be uh, more of a better fit for a, a newer keeper that is maybe experienced with boas but has never had a true red tail. So, um, sure. yeah, man. So let's talk about. Uh, we'll start with the with the smaller smaller guys. So let's talk about uh, the short tail boas, right? So most of these short tail boas obviously are kind of from uh, Brazil and uh, Bolivia. So talk a little bit about uh, you know your work with uh, short sh- with uh, short tail boas with the uh, Amaralis. Sure. Yeah. So I actually, um, I, I'm actually fairly new to the BCI or the, the Amaralis and I have a, a female obviously that you sent me who's an awesome looking female. Yep. And then, uh, I have a male who I'm growing up who is a, uh, Miller line from Ooh. Barry Miller. Nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, he's a sweet boy. He's got, we're talking about those thin saddles. He's got right. like, very very thin batman saddles and just like a very gray speckled background color uh, and, and they the, to me they're real they're smaller snakes they're kind of right. stout but i love their personality they're super alert super attentive um and i don't know I, I and i think they're beautiful too they're they're pretty unique looking as far as like locality bows go yeah no they got a, a really cool you know silver uh, mm-hmm. kind of base color and then with a little bit of a shorter red tail right you know the yeah. reason they call them short tail bows um <laughs> but you're right man they um i would say size wise 
uh, they tend to stay kind of at that five to six feet mark on average, right? Yeah. Uh, and they tend to be a little bit uh, of a chunkier snake <laughs> in general, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They're, they're not fat like, uh, you know, something that we would consider like fat from like a, a ball python type fat. Sure. They, still, they still maintain that square body type, which is nice to yeah. see in any boa species. But they definitely muscle up. You know, really nicely. Like yeah. as as They're a matter more of fact, st- short and stout, like a python. You're right, and but they do maintain that square muscle tone of, of a boa constrictor. Yeah, I mean they look buff, dude. I mean, like to the point that like they my do. son, when he was little, he used to call one of them Wolverine, one of the <laughs> Bolivians that I had, <laughs> because it was short, stout, and just pure muscles. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. Um, so talk a little bit about maybe uh, your uh, Brazilians. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the Brazilians, they are less common, I would say, in mm-hmm. in captivity, but they are. I think I think they're going to gain in a in a popularity quite a bit. They are they stay pretty small, like a reasonable size, right? And they just have a really like mellow, even disposition that makes them pleasant. You know, that combined with their size makes them pleasant to be kept as a as like a pet for people who aren't looking to necessarily have a large collection. Yeah, and they are. So they're the same subspecies as the, you know, the Surinams and the Guyanas. They're right. boa constrictor, constrictor. Um, but they are, it's a good juxtaposition to look at those and like next, like a, those North Brazilians next to a Suriname because right. they are the, but they've been bred for a different look. Right. So these Surinams are really clean, beautiful animals. And then you have on the other side, these North Brazilians who are just, selectively bred to just be covered in these black speckling and right it's it's a pretty stark contrast between they're the like two. a nice dirty boa man I, I, for exactly. lack of a better term i like i, I yeah. i'm a i'm a fan of busy patterns dude so no, i'm for with sure. you on that and then um so kind of moving up through south america i guess for lack of a better term right now <laughs> we're looking uh let's kind of get into uh, our surnames and, and guyanas sure yeah i mean those there's there's I won't get into the debate and the differences of those per se as far as uh, origin, just because you know animals are exported from different areas, but they are the same again the same subspecies. But you know whether you want to say they're the same or different, and boa nerds will debate it back and forth all day. Right. I think that it it can be agreed upon that in captivity they've become, you know, a different locality as far they've been line bred to be totally different appearance so the guyanas right. tend to have those chunkier saddles and more of like a purple maroon color yeah definitely a rich purple color man and that and i think that was true even before a lot of the line breeding i remember having yeah. guyanas uh back in like you know late 90s early 2000s when they were being imported and i just remember you know mm-hmm. super purple animals coming out of there yeah they were beautiful i remember seeing my first one I was like okay like it was the red tail that i love but it was such a Again, start stark contrast of like, pur- like purples and, and maroons all throughout. It was they're beautiful animals for sure. And then personality um, wise, how do you find them? I, personality wise, I I would find them similar to each other, mm-hmm. and I would say it's kind of it. It depends on the animal again, and and I think that it's important as a breeder. I, I like to socialize all my animals and keep right. a, you know produce and few enough animals that I can do that. Because boas, you know, as babies, they tend to be a little bit more defensive as other species. Right. 
but they calm down. At least I found that for the locality stuff. But they calm down, you know, tremendously well with you know regular interaction. Right. And so the as far as the adults, I think that they again are pretty inquisitive, fairly athletic snakes. They'll climb if you give them an opportunity to do so. Uh, I think that with again so good socialization, they can be just very tame animals. I've used my female Pokegron and my big Pukalpa for, you know, educational outreach programs for kids and stuff. And uh, they tend to be, it's kind of a weird, for lack of a better word, they tend to be a little more squeezy when you have them out. Right. And so, dude, that's actually and, a really good description. Huh. <laughs> yeah. And that coupled with the fact that they can be a little bit bigger. Yep. You know, they, they're good. They're a decent snake for someone who has experience with, you know, bigger or medium-sized snakes. Uh, but for that reason, I'd say, you know, they you got to be physically capable of handling a bigger snake who will kind of hold on to you. Yeah, no, and I definitely think they have, like, a, a little bit more of a strength level. And it's slightly yeah. different to maybe some people that have had some experience with some retics. Because a retic, mm-hmm. when you take it out, especially a larger retic, always seems like they have have somewhere they want to go somewhere or somewhere go. they want to explore, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Whereas these ones are more than content to kind of slowly hang on to you. Yeah. But when you're, like you're saying, you know, when they hang on to you, they hang on to you fairly firm. They like feeling that they are secure, Sure. And, yeah, you're right. That's yeah. It's, a, it's a security thing. They want to feel that they are, you know, safe. They're not going to fall, and you're you're making a good tree branch if they're doing that. Right. <laughs> All right, man. Let's uh, move over now to uh, our uh, Peruvians, dude. So talk a little bit about Peruvians, kind of their temperament, and kind of some of the lines that you're working with, and why you picked those lines. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the Peruvians. There's the main two like locales are Iquitos and yep. Pucalpa. Yep. Uh, both neat animals. The the Iquitos, I feel like both of them tend to have more of that kind of that golden background color, but I see mm-hmm. a lot more in the Iquitos, kind of a uniform saddle. Right. Uh, and it stays pretty thin. It tends to like look like a bow tie where it'll come. It'll either be straight or kind of come to a narrow point in the middle. Yep. And uh, and, and the Pucalpas, I've seen a variation of Pucalpas, but a lot of the ones I've seen, or at least the ones I you know, like and, and selectively breed for, is they kind of have their, that same golden color, but it's a really aberrant, um, aberrant saddle pattern, a lot of times like connecting saddles. Uh, and so it's, kinda, it's definitely a different look. Uh, and then, so those are the two main localities. And then there are a couple people, like I said, breeding breeding uh, them selectively. The main right. one, again, like I was talking about, would be Jim Pomaville, who produces some pretty outstanding animals. And yeah, those, are, those are, again, the gold color with the very, very thin saddles and, and a pretty long red tail. Yeah, and they no. get all, all of them get pretty large. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. the largest species of true red tail that I keep. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. And... um Talk a little bit about what it takes to kind of um, breed all these and, um, you know, um, maybe some differences between breeding them and, and, and breeding, you know, common boas. Sure. So uh, I definitely found a more kind of narrow parameter for the husbandry. But another right. thing that for me that was pretty pretty big difference was true red tails tend to have a little bit more sensitive of a digestive system. Hmm. And so... 
like that's one of the things that people say oh you know they're harder to keep so if you have like a true red tail i tend to not try to feed them too large of a meal right and so this is this is probably the only thing for me where i'm like okay they may be slightly more challenging to keep and so if you feed a true red tail too big of a meal uh and for whatever reason, a lot of times they'll regurgitate. Yep. Uh, or they're more prone to that as opposed to a, like a BCI. And so I, I always suggest to people, I'm like, you got to be more diligent about the size of the meals you feed them. And if you if you do that, then I think you're going to have success if you've had success with, you know, BCIs or breeding morph boas or keeping them. Yeah. No, totally, man. And then I think one other tip that maybe I'd throw out there too that worked really well for me uh, back when I did a lot of the BCIs, uh, I'm sorry, BCCs, is the fact that uh, I would kind of build in like a three-month period where I would either not offer food or offer very little food, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I would do that as a preparatory for uh, breeding season, right? Um, Mm -hmm. and, And I found that that ended up producing really healthy animals and also i just didn't feed as frequently as other people you know i saw a lot of people uh, who would feed weekly you know their animals weekly Mm -hmm. whereas i would feed you know when they're little maybe once every two weeks and then as they became adults Mm -hmm. maybe once a month right and my boas did really really well and they thrived under those conditions and they bred under those conditions any other tips that you would kind of provide people um as far as uh breeding um uh, BCCs goes. I think you kind of, you kind of. That was a very good point. The other thing too is, uh, I, I find temp drops to be very effective for me. Mm-hmm. So I'll use I'll use thermostats with automatic temperature drops, and so as I'm bringing those temperatures down, I'm you know starting to decrease the feeding so that they don't have as much food sitting in their system with the cooler temperatures. Right. Uh, and and then as I bring that up, I this again for me it works for me it may not work for everyone but I really like to utilize low pressure systems really uh, and humidity yeah so I, I do that with my pythons too but when you get low pressure systems I like you know rain or, or thunderstorms mm-hmm. I'll pair everyone who's ready up and huh. I'll see a, a significantly higher percentage of locks during the, those windows. Wow, that's actually really smart. You know, I haven't, I, I, you know, I've heard about folks doing that, but I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that actually, you know, planned for that in that manner. So, sure. <laughs> no, dude, it's smart. It makes sense, man. So let me ask you, out of all the locality boas, um, which ones would you recommend for people who are experienced with boas but are looking to maybe pick up their first pair of localities? Uh, if you're experienced with boas, and you're looking to pick up your first locality, I would recommend looking at the boas, all the different localities, and getting what you like and doing diligent research. That's awesome. And, yep. and you know what I mean? Like As long as you're willing to put in the work and do the research, get what you like. Yep. Now, as far as people who may maybe haven't had experience with boas. Yeah, let's I say somebody coming over earlier, from the Bob Python world. Yeah, I think, honestly, I think that BCAs, the the umbrellas, are a really good segue between boas and ball pythons, especially right. the cowdy boas, because they kind of have a similar build. They have a similar, they stay smaller. Uh, they're 
you know, fairly forgiving as far as care, but you got to be just like any animal. You got to do your research and be diligent. But yep. I think that's a good, good segue into locality boas. Awesome, man. Well, brother, I appreciate you kind of covering these for us. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to do the dirty dozen. All right, guys, we're back. It's time for the Dirty Dozen. Tony, I'm going to ask you 12 questions. You give me 12 answers. They can be as long or as short as you want. All right, brother? All right, fire away. All right, man. Number one, what's the size of your current collection? So the size of my collection is actually significantly down, but I'm keeping larger animals. Right. So a couple years ago, I was up at, you know, maybe couple hundred animals and i decided to refocus a little bit and now i'm sitting at about 75 breeders so nice. that's you know that, that's excluding babies yep so that's a wildly variable number <laughs> yeah no totally uh number two husbandry related question are you a frozen and thought or live guy and what's your betting choice okay so i actually am gonna be a contrarian i do a lot of pre-killed yep heaters uh just because it's I have the availability of wholesale live rodents locally, but I don't like feeding live. Yep. And so I opt to go with a pre-killed route, and I do supplement with frozen thawed for the boas. And then I feed – the only ones I feed regularly off frozen is um, all my retics have frozen rabbits and guinea pigs. Right. Nice, man. And then as far as bedding. Yeah. So bedding, I actually do – mostly paper or like reptizorb in my yep. racks yep and then if i'm finding that you know I, i'd supplement with uh, a humidifier but if i'm finding i need more humidity or for my females who are getting close to laying i like to put um cocoa in there as, as a bedding nice man number three what's your favorite morph or locality oh man my favorite locality even though I love all of them, runner-up is the North Brazilians, but Suriname's always been my favorite since since the first one. Any particular and, line uh, that you like? Lines? Yeah, I love the Florida Red Tails. I do. Those Boom. There it is, probably folks. Probably my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> and then Morphs, I love I love the Super Parsons, or I think that they've been dubbed as a candy cane. Yep. Which I'm not a fan of, so I'll call them the Super Parsons. Yeah, those are badass, man. <laughs> but uh, they're sweet. And then I do, you know, I'm not, like I said, a big morph guy with the boas, but I'm really loving, like, the carbon stuff that's been coming out recently. Oh, yeah, totally, man. Shout out to Kenny Saito over there. That carbon project, I think, is one of the key projects in the entire future of the hobby. So big shouts out to, er- to him and everybody working on him. Yeah, huge potential on that stuff. All right, man. Number four, what is the most overrated morph or locality? Uh, oh, man, I don't like this question. I'll tell you why. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like this question. So I feel like I'm going to bring in a little bit of retic and ball python guys here, but I feel like people like Justin Kabelka and right. uh, and Ben Rennick, they've done a really good job or, or did a really good job of finding these morphs they kind of like came out and they just went to the wayside right? and they had a vision and you know, like, okay, what would this pair well with? And they took like things like uh, spot nose and even yep. clown was like losing in popularity and they spot made nose leopard. Pop- yep. 
Yep, exactly. Yeah, and so they took it and had a vision and just made animals that just brought these projects back to life. That being said, <laughs> I think maybe some of the things, like I, I would say hypo, I think if I had to pick one, is just something that's not overrated but overused for sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, and things yep. that I have a hard time picking as far as expression would be like something like jaguar and harlequin that maybe that I have a hard time identifying and, and maybe, you know, I don't see as much potential in. Nice, man. All right. Number five, what is the most underrated morpher locality? Oh man. Underrated, honestly. And I know it's has, it's somewhat popular. It's been around for a long time, but I think that leopard doesn't get enough cred where credit's due in my opinion. Yep. And again, I think, it's got, yeah, I think that it's got a lot of potential as far as, you know, someone bringing, having a vision and bringing it back to life. Like just, I think just recently someone, in my opinion, did that and they made that habanero boa, which I yep. think is like a high boa. Yeah, it's, it's, a, a, leopard, it's right? a VPI sunglow leopard. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, that thing is a, that's beautiful. Yeah. That thing is a screamer, dude. And then, you know what? I'll throw one in here, dude, that I think is super underrated that you touched on and that's Bolivian boas, you know? Those Bolivians, yeah. I I think they are one of those snakes that a lot of people maybe overlook, but as more people get comfortable with it, I think you're going to start seeing people fall in love with that particular, you know, locality. And then people are really going to start diving even deeper into trying to refine it. Totally, man. Yeah, I think that you're right. They don't get enough credit because they have that, you know, shorter tail and everyone wants the big long red tail but they are they're exempt exemplary animals they're very good to work with all right man number six what's your favorite part of the hobby uh my favorite part of the hobby number one it's going to be working with the animals and two i think that i'm going to cheat and do two sorry and then the community and the friends i've made through the hobby you know whether that be shows um local or or people you meet online yeah, no, I think that's pretty much my favorite part too, dude. All right, number seven. Uh, what's the worst part of the hobby? <laughs> well, having the community and friends, having that being said, I'm going to say the worst part for me is the kind of how social media has, you know, to a degree, it's opened up a lot of doors for people. Right. It's done great things for the hobby, but I think also it may have had some negative impacts too. Um, and that leads me to the other part of that. So it's social media, and then I think that the like the fact that there's drama around the reptile community is kind of silly to me, man. It, it makes me sad. It's like we all have this mutual love, and I don't think that you know it's worthwhile for a bunch of grown-ups to be getting upset with each other over reptiles. <laughs> Amen on that, dude. <laughs> all right, man. Number okay, eight. The worst. The worst part. Yeah. Number eight, and you already kind of answered this one. Uh, what other uh, species do you keep and why? I've kept, you know, a ton of stuff. From chameleons, tegus, colubrids, retics, blackheads. I kept some timors and burmese. You know, a ton of different stuff. Monitors. Yep. Uh, but currently, I'm primarily keeping retics, boas, ball pythons, and I do have a few um, colubrids. Nice. That I have as just primarily as pets, to be honest. But I'll probably be moving more into the dry mark on stuff. But I have an indigo. 
a male eastern indigo, and then I have uh, a male musarana. Um, I had a female mandarin rat snake that um, someone wanted, so I, I gifted that one to a friend. But yeah, just some oddball colubrids. Yeah, no, I'm with you, Manning. I, I I love my Easterns, dude. They are my cleanup crew when I have snakes yeah. <laughs> that don't want to eat and I have some leftover frozen thawed, you know. They handle that pretty well, dude. I don't know well, about dude. you, too, but they handle the leftover day-old chicks pretty well, too. Oh, yeah, totally, dude. From falconry rides, yeah. No, these guys mm-hmm. will, especially uh, I have a, a, a you know fairly young Eastern Indigo male uh, who's honestly like my only true pet snake that I have right now, mm-hmm. right? And so his name is Steve, and Steve will eat everything and anything left over by my goshawk. Uh, back when I had, when I was flying uh, falcons, he would le- eat whatever you know pieces of leftover chicks that they didn't want to finish, because I had some real finicky falcons at the time. Yeah, man, yeah. that's how they roll. Shout out to Steve, man. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta keep some stuff as a pet, you know. Well, oh yeah, that's totally. The point if you don't enjoy keeping it. Yeah, amen to that, dude. O- only problem is I don't enjoy cleaning up after him because he. <laughs> craps like a king oh yeah yep yeah the, those dry marcon are no joke man their feeding response on their their response on both ends the mouth coming out of the cage and the mess they leave behind oh yeah oh yeah all right man number nine what's a common misconception about you you know i don't necessarily know if i have like a public persona enough to have a misconception but I would say that I'm kind of like a closet breeder, but I would say that the other people who I do know in the community, I am a pretty, pretty introverted person. And right. so I feel like maybe there's a misconception that, you know, maybe I'm less approachable or I don't, you know, you can't reach out to me, but hey, if you want to reach out to me and talk Falcon and talk snakes, you know, I'm always open to that. So that's probably the closest I can come to that. Nice, man. All right, number 10. What makes you say, what was I thinking when you look back at your time in the hobby? Oh, man. Lack of focus. I'm sure that's yep. not the first time. Yeah. That. <laughs> I'm with you, dude. We, we, all, we all got Pokemon syndrome, bro. <laughs> oh, dude, yeah. Imagine it's a real thing. Imagine a uh, boa collection I could have right now if I didn't keep everything and anything under the sun. <laughs> right. Oh, man. All right, number 11. What's one tip you would give the people looking to invest in boas and in reptiles? Okay. Um, I think that I would say do your research. And if you're truly investing, treat treat this decision kind of with the same fiscal diligence you would any other investment decision. You, you want to know your markets. You want to know you have, you know, what platforms you have to sell. You want to know the lineage of that animal. Uh, and I think the, the biggest thing is have vision and invest in what you love. That's that's my biggest investment tip because you know I, I we've all been guilty of chasing chasing markets on Morse and stuff but in the end just do what you love. Yep, amen to that, dude. All right, brother, number twelve. Any shout outs you want to throw out there? Yeah, man. Um, I mean, I would say I'll start by saying shout out to Vin Russo for writing the book, literally writing the book on it. Um, I don't know him personally, but his books have been paramount for me. Uh, Ace Boas has helped me a ton just through social media, reached out and we've kept in contact and he's been a super helpful resource. Uh, shout out to Brian Abramson for founding Florida Red Tails, uh, making, you know, these, these badass animals that made me want to be part of this. Uh, 
shout out to my buddy Mike Porter from the Ball Python world. He's a good dude. Yep. And then uh, shout out to uh, there's a there's a gal local to me, Stephanie Sickler, and she is she has a really awesome both morph and locality boa collection. So shout out to her, man. She's she's making some really awesome stuff this season. Awesome, man. Well, that wraps it up for today. Tony, tell the people out there where they can see your animals and learn more about you. Yeah, so you can find best place would be uh, social media. You can <clears throat> Facebook. You got Florida Red Tails and Send Cal Exotics. Uh, Instagram. We've got Send Cal Exotics on there, and we'll have Florida Red Tails soon. Uh, those are probably your two best options. We do have a morph market page, but we are all sold out for the year. So come find, find us on social media and check out that uh, that proving girl's funky tail. Awesome. All right, guys, that wraps it up for today. Thanks for listening. We are out. Guys, that was a great episode. Thanks to Tony Pantaleo of Sencal Exotics and Florida Redtails for joining us today. Join us on the next episode as we speak with Kenny Saito of Boa Affliction. We're going to talk about his work with the Carbon Jeep. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you guys tuning in. Do us a favor. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Until next time, grow them slow.